Hello and welcome to this, the 15th episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now, each week, we bring you these conversations and these interviews absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we won't ever charge for the podcast, but we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind this podcast, to support, promote, and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre. And of course, the simplest, most straightforward way to support Irish theatre is to go and buy yourself some tickets to whatever show is happening near you. Get out there and do it. If, for some reason, tickets are slightly outside your reach this week or this month, go and look at one of the crowdsourcing websites like a fundit.ie, an Indiegogo, whatever. There are always uh, great projects over there that are worthy of your support. Donations often start from as low as a fiver, and there are usually Usually great rewards in return for those donations. But of course, as we always tell you, you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket. Go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or over a pint or when you're out taking the kids for a stroll in the buggy, maybe. Um, and then, of course, you can share the link on Facebook or you can retweet it on Twitter. That's a good help for us in terms of spreading it outside our own reach and the own kind of the networks that we already have here. Do please go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes if you are an Apple head, but if you are not, these podcasts are, of course, streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Uh, do go back and listen to all the other episodes. We're now up to 15 in this second series. And, of course, there's 52 back from season one from the few years ago, which is, uh, they're all there, still very much worth a listen. Um, If you can, go on over to iTunes and leave us a review, please, or just simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system. Those reviews and ratings really, really help push us up in the charts. The higher up up we are in the charts, the more we can get the word out about the great stuff that's happening in Irish theatre. So do please, if you can, support us with 30 seconds of your time over on iTunes. It would be much appreciated. You can, of course, as ever, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And well, 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 what a week it has been. My trusty MacBook that has been with me from day one with everything we've done with Rise Productions. It's been with us since fight night. I waited and waited and waited because I was smart. I wasn't foolish. I wasn't reckless. I wasn't careless. I wasn't going to go and upgrade to High Sierra without making sure that all the kinks and all the little gremlins were worked out because I knew what it had been doing to other people's machines. So I let it go all over Christmas, all over everything, and I kept getting the reminders and kept getting the reminders and so finally this week I decided I would upgrade my trusty MacBook to High Sierra and as soon as I upgraded it it killed the goddamn machine. Um, I That computer was working absolutely fine. I had upgraded the RAM in it only a year ago. I'd put in a brand new super high-capacity SSD this time last year. It was working like a dream. And High Sierra killed the bastard. So uh, it also killed it last Thursday as I was just about to start editing the last week's episode of the podcast, which is why it was marginally delayed um it's been a hectic week just trying to get it all sorted get the logistics sorted out try and salvage what i could and get it out mercifully i had had the good sense to back everything up so everything was still there all the audio files were there and i was able to get the podcast out in due course but it was a stressful time what it does mean is that i have now managed to get myself a brand new shiny super top of the range macbook pro to get making all my new wonderful exciting things on which is nice and shiny but it did of course mean dropping many thousands of pounds on this new equipment and glorious though it is uh that hurts it's a kick in the nuts um and i had no intention of upgrading because the new machines wonderful that they are the old connectivity on them isn't amazing so it's i'm I'm in a whole world of dongles and connectivity and adapters and ports and hubs and all kinds of boring technical things 
that you have absolutely no interest in. So I won't bore you any further. What you do have an interest in is our guest this week, and it is none other than the brilliant Connor Hanratty, who I have a huge amount of time for. I go back an awful long way with. We were uh, we were knocking around Trinity together at the same time on different sides of the Shelbyville stroke Springfield divide, as you will hear as we go on. Connor was in the uh, the academic end of things. I was in the actor training program, and there was a weird thing where there was quite a not animosity, but like there was a, a real separation between us. It was like never the twain shall meet. Um, we weren't allowed to do anything in players. They were all running players single handedly, basically. Um, and it's a fantastic chat, Connor. Someone I've had uh, the great privilege of working with a couple of times, um, who I have a huge amount of time for, an industrious guy, an incredibly talented and uh, really hard working guy, and someone who has an incredibly interesting story that, as you'll hear, has brought him all. All around the world. So look, let's get straight to it. Here it is. The brilliant Connor Hanratty. The wonderful Connor Hanratty. How the hell are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Okie doke. Let us start as we always do. Let's get back to the very beginning. <laughs> when does it begin for you? When does the idea of a life in the theatre begin for you? And this is very embarrassing. I think, I think, um, when my brother was being born, and he is three and a half years younger than me to yes. the day. Yes. To the day. Uh, to the day. That's selfish. Uh, no, it's fine. Um, but we, we get on very well now. Um, <laughs> my parents thought it would be a good idea to get me out of the house. And so I have my first theatre memories. We're going to see Aaron Pogue at the gate, which I think was in, I suppose, January 1985. Okay. When my beloved brother was born. Um, it was Aaron Pogue, it was Cinderella, or Cinderella, yes, I remember, at the Olympia, and a production by Anne Kavanagh of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, at which I think I sort of sat and went, I'll be having that. And that was it. Uh, was this in quick succession around the birth, like some kind of mini next stage program? <laughs> yeah, in honour of my brother's arrival, yes. Uh, it was just that that winter, um, I, I'm possibly conflating things, but certainly they were three very early successive wow. theatre memories that I was taken to and yeah it's all my parents fault they loved going to the theatre uh, I grew up going to, with them sometimes in the, in a group altogether sometimes with one or other parent um, yeah it's entirely their fault that I'm doing what I do that's kind of crazy so from the tender young age of then three and a half four, three and a half four yeah, pointing uh, at the stage going that please and maybe not that and nothing has changed <laughs> So what are the first steps towards that then? Are there Saturday afternoon drama classes? Uh, exactly that, yeah. uh, which moved to a Wednesday. And then at the end of secondary uh, end of primary school, uh, rather than going anywhere local um, in Rathfarnham, I had decided that I wanted to go to Belvedere because they put on plays. Excellent. Uh, again, parental culpability there because uh, Jerry Hall, who did the shows in Belvedere, was a very dear friend of my mother's from okay. university, from UCD. So off I went there. Uh, starting a habit of going very far away from where I was to pursue things I was interested in. Um, and Belvo was incredible. I had a yeah. great time there. Uh, I did some shows and then I also learned that sometimes if you don't, if you're not having a good time, it's okay not to do it, which happened. And then I went back to it. And then I, thanks to my Jesuit training, decided that I would go to Trinity to do, or I applied to go to Trinity to do the drama course there, but not feeling that I was ever necessarily good enough to get into the acting programme or anything like that or even the single honours programme necessarily I decided to apply with a backup so I was going to I did drama and Latin <laughs> two really really employable skills oh listen if you're going to do it um, <laughs> I wanted to do drama and ancient Greek but um, still. Trinity wouldn't let me do that because okay. of timetabling so I did the Latin to get into the theatre to get into the drama department uh, I keep saying that and into the classics department who uh, actually sit on a pot of money there were lots of very nice awards to be had. Oh, really? Uh, yes. Uh, Smart. So I won a, I, I, and then there's the scholarship exams, and I didn't get that. Um, but I got, I think that, I haven't had many awards in my life, but the one that I got, which I absolutely love, was called the Marshall Porter Memorial Scholarship. And it's named after somebody who died in the Boer War. And it's for the person who applies for the skull and sits the skull examinations in Trinity and gets the highest mark without getting anything. And I got that. And I got a trip to Greece, which was incredible. Okay, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's not to be too sneezed at. That's like the time I won Player of the Year for my GAD team, having played an entire season at corner forward and not scored a single point. It's the, the Asher God Love Him Award. Oh, they sh you, you showed up every time thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's my kind of prize. Like, <laughs> talk, to me about, talk to me about a trip to Greece then. Yeah, good. Well, that's another part of things. Um, it, I think there were three of us who went. 
uh, and a boyfriend of one of the two girls who came with and we, we sort of cobbled together and we got a little bit of money from the department and we went around of course I was very dedicated to going looking at the old rocks and bits of things that were left now would um, this have been like between like first and second year or second and third yeah, or something exactly, like that yeah exactly okay. so late in the summer we were there actually on September the 11th okay the, uh, in 2001 and um, Claire Creeley and I got on a bus having traipsed around ancient Corinth and this very gleeful looking old man sort of said are you Americans having overheard us talking we said no and he told us that a Palestinian plane had flown <laughs> deliberately into New York City just into the city and had started World War Three uh, so clearly he had seen some news but not all of it that day but certainly then when we got back to you know electricity yeah. and civilization it was mind-boggling and all the weirder because all of the coverage we were seeing was in Greek Wow. so we were trying to pick out words or maybe see if we could possibly read it and it, it was an extraordinary day and needless to say we we know what did actually happen that day and and so on yeah um, but yeah there were and then we, we, there was the, the decision to be made do we stay on here uh, in the flight path or do we go home and some of us stayed and some of us went home wow so talk to me then about being at Trinity particularly at that time which was you know to be fair a bit of a golden era I think it's not unreasonable to say that well I mean you were there I, I, that's, I didn't want to say that was the sole purpose that is in fact the sole yes. reason you, you and I did share some classes indeed we? well for the classes we were allowed in and we were always glad to see you. Yeah, in your own special way. Like, what? <laughs> I'll never get over the bizarre, pointless divide between us. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think you and I, even back then, I think there was one day when we talked about how, you know, that we're going to be making stuff with you anyway. But nonetheless, we survived that. But uh, yeah, I, I had an incredible time. I, I sort of arrived, didn't get into the Freshers Co-op and Players, and then wound up in Sarah Brennan's Director's Option, which she was a graduating fourth year and she was directing the play. And I was in that with um, Kean O'Brien you may have heard of I'm familiar with uh, his work Wayne Jordan I may have heard well. of him uh, Wayne was the star of the show okay uh, from the background <laughs> he was incredible and I've never seen it he, there was a balloon that he had to burst during the show and he stood there with such focus and discipline it was amazing and we, we were all very glad to be there but thereafter I did get involved in players um, you know, this was an amazing time when we were all kind of in there and getting to know what we wanted to do and I think we I think I did something like 40 shows while I was in, in college um, in every imaginable capacity yeah um, acting which <laughs> perhaps rightly didn't continue although I'm thinking about I might there, there might be a thing coming up in the a future a glorious return well a return and then you can tell me if it's glorious <laughs> or not um, but it's I can't I can barely put in words how much it meant to me and what I learned and and showing up yeah. was the big thing and just being a part of it um, some of the friends I made there are my, my nearest and dearest to this day um, and collaborators and just fellow travellers really yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, because it was like, I'm like, Russia would have been around at the time as well, am I right? Russia go, Natalie Radmel quirk um, Alan Leach Alan as Leach well was in my class, around. Rory Keenan um, goodness Kian actually was the, the, the greatest graduate of the Becca Centre who never went to a class there. Um, <laughs> and tremendously so. Um, Ruth Nega was sort of floating, yeah, floating around, around at the time. Um, just an, an extraordinary. And to sort of think that we were all there yeah. in each other's pockets. And, you know, I taught them all everything they know. This is Clearly. a fact. That is, a, that is an Not un- the un- They taught me much more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, at this stage... Going through those few years in Trinity, how set were you in your mind as to what your route might be out the far side of that? Or were you quite open to maybe it'll be acting, maybe it'll be directing, maybe it'll be producing, maybe it'll be writing? Or I was in a production of The Crucible. Yes. And um, it's a play that I like very much. And of course, I was what, 19 or 20, so I knew everything. <laughs> as we all do at that uh, Yeah, stage. and I really, I miss those times because that was, that was brilliant. <laughs> the certainty is nice, isn't it? But I remember standing on the stage and I was playing Putnam, yes. that great character, and just sort of thinking that maybe if I were doing this, I might put that actress there so that then if she was there, that sort of eye line between her and him and then he's going to come in that door, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of that began to make me think that maybe I wanted to be a director. Um, when I was doing the leading cert, 
Am I allowed to say the name of the Scottish player or not? I don't know how superstitious this podcast is. I what are the rules for podcasts? Oh, that's strange because I'm allowed to say fuck or bollocks, but I would probably but you'd I'd more to go Scottish play. Okay, that's weird. That's very interesting. Tweets their own. Man, well, that's, that well, is kind of specific, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> that play, anyway, was my leaving cert play. Um, we might talk about a little bit later about another Shakespeare play that I'm rather fond of. But um, I remember I had to do some sort of an essay question on discuss animal imagery in the Scottish play. And I remember deeply resenting that because it's a play about people and yeah. the animal imagery. I'm sure it's there and it's very important and, and so on. But it was clearly like a bored it question. Sa- it, sounds like, it sounds like an English teacher's question. Yeah. <laughs> My mother was an incredible English teacher, so I won't hear a word against them. But that particular approach to the play didn't work for me. And no. I was more interested in seeing it on the stage. Strangely enough. I, I think it remains the play of all plays in the world that I've seen most often. Mm. And it's a very good one. But that, that was in my mind as kind of definitely putting things onto the stage and taking them off the page is very important. And that's something I want to do. Um, of course, I really want to play that part as well. I don't know why. Um, but that would be one that I would uh, pursue. Yeah. So if anyone's listening. Um, Rice Productions 2020. Oh, listen. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, but the, the sort of first year in players kind of led me to that. And then Kathy Rose O'Brien, another person at the time was the chair of players at the time was she and she was indeed well, okay and decided to let me direct Shirley Valentine before the Freshers co-op which was generally the start of the yeah the, the players year and she decided to let me do that and I did it and it was rather good and I I, I think I somehow put together a crew of about 14 or 15 people for that solo show for a one woman show <laughs> And I remember we had a production meeting at some point. And I, you ended I, up in Opera How? I mean, like, come on. Well, listen, as, as many jobs as I can generate for people, paid or unpaid. Um, I do remember sitting at a production meeting for Shirley Valentine thinking, what on earth have I asked these people to do? But it was, it was nicely put together and we had a beautiful poster. And uh, Jessamy, who played the part, did a, a very good job of it. I was very delighted and it was an insane thing to put on mm. and of course it's very intense to do a one person show which I hadn't really thought about uh, yeah. so I put together all these rehearsals and things and it's just she just has to come in and do it yeah. a lot um, stood me in good stead but that was the beginning of <laughs> I, I had the moment of going yeah I do really enjoy that yeah. and, and putting it all together it's a funny one because I as I as I move more and more towards it as kind of a parallel track, I'm really getting a buzz off it that I didn't think I would. I presumed it would be very different to the performing thing. It's but brilliant. It's I'm going to become an actor. You're going to be directed. It's, it's amazing. Just, just, just <laughs> back and forth in this Absolutely. Um, yeah. No. I do. I look. I look as a kind of as a parallel track. I really enjoy it. Because, mm. And again, it's just. I guess it's run the company as well. That you just you start to out of necessity have that broader vision mm. for things and care about it as well it's interesting to me so the time then comes when you finish in Trinity <laughs> yes uh, and then do you immediately start to broaden your horizons and look further afield or what, uh, what happened what happened um, while I was at Trinity um, Professor Steve Wilmer decided to send me to Greece because I had done had I done the production already yes I had done a production of Medea which did very well at ISDA, and I had translated it myself, and the classics department had given me more money for that. So it was all very good. Um, and as a result, there was a new summer course that was being put together as like an intensive graduate course for students from all over Europe to go to Greece, to the ancient theatre in Epidaurus, um, to sit and talk about theatre for two weeks while the performances are being created there. It, it, I, and then I went for about 10 years thereafter because they liked me and I worked very hard and had a great time. Um, and while I was there, somebody mentioned to me that there was a master's programme in Royal Holloway in London about Greek theatre performance. And I thought, that's perfect. I mean, the Medea had happened. In the background, I always wanted to do Shakespeare, but Greek tragedy is also... Hang on, what am I missing? I, I thought you were doing Latin with drama. Yes, but I did the Latin to get in with the Greek. There's no, you know the great Latin tragedy? No. Exactly. <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> but how did you get proficient enough to be translating Greek? I did Greek in Belvedere. Nerd! Oh, 100%. We, we didn't have yeah. Greek in Port Martin Community School. <laughs> well, you're lost. Indeed. Yeah. If you'd wow. like grinds, I'm available. So, have um, you relatively good Greek and Latin then? Uh, relatively to you. Oh, yes. yes, okay. To you. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they have uh, perhaps been dislodged in my head by a couple of other things since then. Sure. But I got A's in Leaving Cert Greek and Latin. Did yes. you really? I really did, yeah. 
And I loved it. Loved it. That's impressive. Mm. Like Hugh from Translations. Yeah, except I don't really teach on the side of the road. No, well, but not you. yet, but who knows? <laughs> Only ever a lot of time. <laughs> um, so the Greek thing, that must have... I mean, I, I presume you can't get away from just feeling that this is the centre of the theatrical universe when you're there. Well, in Delphi, in Greece, this, they had a rock, which was actually called the navel of the world. Um, and it has its own fancy word in Greek. But in Epidaurus... We were the guests of a municipality, so we heard an awful lot of the nice things they had to say about their nice place. One of them was that they called it the navel of creativity and art. And it is, I think, the most magical place I've ever been in my life. Yeah. It is, it's so beautiful. The theatre itself is it's magnificent. If, anytime you ever get to visit, go. It's brilliant. Do the thing. Say a monologue in the middle of it because you, you, the, the acoustics really are perfect. Really? You really will see people tearing up a piece of paper or dropping a pin and you can hear it from the back. No! Absolutely. And for eight weeks of the summer, eight weekends, there are performances there and you'll have 14, 15,000 people watching a play. And the most magical thing in the most magical place in the world, the, the, can you see my nerd flag I'm, flying I'm with you. There's a moment of silence. They'll do a safety announcement because it's sure everywhere does. And then there's a moment of silence as 14,000 people concentrate their attention on the stage. And generally, the, the, the cohort of the cast have to walk from the backstage, which is, you know, three, four hundred feet away, to stand behind the set. And you'll see them processing in and a good director will do it very formally. Mm-hmm. But just that silence, that, that listening, that's community built immediately and that's what it's all about that's so, so that cool. the, the, yeah i i was very very lucky to be invited to be part of the the summer school there and to visit and to work with them and just just to be there yeah and i got to see fiona shaw doing uh, happy days there and that's a play about the old style and about <laughs> you know being up to your waist or your neck and old rocks and <laughs> i mean it, it, it fit into the space there kind of miraculously well and indeed, there was a whole political thing because um, in the theatre there, it's supposed to be, according to traditionalists, you should only do Greek tragedies. Oh, of course. In yeah, yeah. So the fact that they're doing a Beckett play there, and so that tension with the old style and yada yada, was an incredible privilege to see that there. Um, so that, that, that's been a very special place that I've got to go to. So, But the reason I mention all, oh, all, all of that, sorry, <laughs> is that as a result of this Epidaurus love affair, uh, I decided to go to London to do this Masters and they accepted me and I got a little bit of funding and I was going to do that. So that was half the plan. On the last day that I had to hand in whatever the last piece of paperwork was in the Beckett Centre, uh, I was walking into the office to talk to lovely Anne there and I saw on the notice board, because you know, there's eight notice boards in a row going down that corridor, and I saw a piece of paper, you know, would you like to study in Japan? And I thought, sure, fine. Why not? I'll have a look at this. And uh, this is before the days of you could take a photograph of the thing on the thing. Yes. So um, I read it and there was a week left. So I may have pinched that piece of paper and I took it home. And then I went back in the following day and I put it back up having read all the things. um, Because I'd be haunted otherwise. And the thing was, this was a Monday. Mm -hmm. And it was due on Friday. All applications were in. And what you had to do was get a letter from a Japanese university saying that they would accept you. (laughs) Uh, A full medical. Um... And this, that, and the other from the embassy and so on and so forth. So I kind of thought, well, I'll give it a go. But this is late. Uh, yeah. I mean, now we're, I mean, this isn't pre-email, but still getting all that stuff together yes. in the space of four or five days. Indeed. Now, conveniently, there is one, at the time, there was one Japanese university that had a major um, theatre department that had an English language website. Okay. That's not to say that there, there are many incredible institutes of learning for theatre in Japan. Uh, but the one that had an what I didn't know was it was the most expensive university in Japan. Um, I'm kind of proud of that too. Uh, so I wrote in English to a very well-meaning professor who presumably got this bewildered, breathless email from me going, hello, um, I'd love to you know, swing by, um, but it's due on Friday. So, uh, And she emailed back and said, I don't know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really know your work, but certainly if you were to get as far as having the conversation with the Japanese government scholarship programme, we'd certainly be interested to continue the conversation. It seems that was enough. (laughs) Not least from the Waseda University email address. And so I put the application in, I finished all my paperwork and I finished my degree in Trinity and I went off to Greece, as was my wont at that point, back to hanging out. And the plan was in place that I was going to go to London in September. So that was all fine. And then when I was in Greece, I got a phone call from the Japanese embassy saying, can you come for an interview? And I was like, uh, I can't on Friday. I'm, I'm going to be in Epidaurus. 
And they said, okay, well, we'll wait and come back two weeks' time when you're back in Ireland and we'll set it up, and we did. And so I did. And generally, this scholarship is, is for diversity because okay. Japanese universities are full of Japanese people. And so this was a kind of a, a programme to give a little bit of perspective. And, and so, so a white kid becomes an ethnic minority. Uh, yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Um, generally, it seems to be, you know, for business and law and quote unquote real jobs. Yeah. And I think the cultural attaché who was in the room was so bemused because I walked in and I said, there's a Japanese theatre director called Ninagawa who I think is fabulous. And I saw, thanks to my mother, the great educator, uh, she recorded a, a, an open university thing with clips from his production of Medea mm-hmm. um, when I was 13. And as a result of it, I decided I would do Greek in school instead wow. of something useful like German. Yeah. And I would go and study drama. And then I, had, I think my master's eventually wound up being about his production of Oedipus and so on and so forth. So I'm in the embassy going, there's this dude and he's deadly and I want to go and study him. And they were so bemused by that. They kind of went, actually, yeah, go ahead. It's so crazy. It <laughs> just might so work. It's so weird. And so not what we were expecting today. Um, that I did. And they, they let me go. So I spent a year in London worried about it. And then, because the, the way the program is that they... They interview you quite far in advance okay. to give you time to get set up. Um, also, the Japanese school year is at a different sure. beginning and ending, so that the things align. So, very conveniently, I spent my time well and got a little master's, wrote about Ninagawa himself. So, and you then, did the London master's mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. Holy Jesus. Yeah. In, then, in the gap before I had no In the gap, yeah. That's productive. That is good use. I would have been in the pub and, <laughs> and probably lying by I the might, somewhere. I might perhaps have benefited from going to some Japanese classes. Oh, there we go. But that didn't really necessarily add up. So <laughs> okay. I arrived in Tokyo with Nahan. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think the sum total of my Japanese knowledge is, is the Japanese for Christmas? Kurismasu! Kurismasu, yeah, yeah, very good. That's, about yeah. It. that's, that's as good I'm as I'm sure guess. you can say arigato. No, I don't even have wrestling words, which is strange. Sumo. Well, well, puro resu is... Puro resu. I, yeah, that's yeah, as much as I have. That's true. Um, um, I so, really think we need to go to Japan. I think we do um, badly. We'll, but we'll pick the time and we'll get to the sumo. Talk to me about <laughs> the culture shock of arriving in Japan. The really funny thing is that when I got to Japan, it was just lovely. It, I, I'd love to tell you I was culture shocked. Yeah. I was more culture shocked after a year in London. I think yeah. because I assumed in my gentle suburban Dublin life that England was the same as us yes and as a result then and I wasn't I, I mean it's called the University of London it's nine there's a there's a little stone outside Royal Holloway that proudly announces 19 miles to Hyde Park okay so it's near London and but even that just the difference because it is a very different country and it's allowed to be but there was an Irish American girl and an Irish girl in my class there and the three of us were kind of sitting going oh you lot have no idea about us in any way and we three became very good friends and had a very good productive year but it was extraordinary to me the the difference of awareness I'm not going to say lack it's not a value judgment at all but that was extraordinary to me and to be treated differently because I was Irish was very new yeah and surprising mm. and sometimes difficult but um, what the, the flip side of that was I have I had never actively kind of felt proud to be Irish okay and uh, boy was I there which yeah. is great I've, I have a recollection of having the conversation with the esteemed Ruth Negga about Cromwell and mm. kind of I think in their world he was quite a productive dude who kind of you know organised things quite <laughs> you go, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's quite the, the colour okay. or spin we would have put on it, but sure. No, we, 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 we had a different experience, yeah. shall we say. Yeah, indeed. Um, so then I arrived in Tokyo, and I think there's just a great freedom, because I'm so different. And yeah, I'm white. I really don't look Japanese. Um, I, I, at the time, I was rather heavy, heavier. And as a result, then, I was never going to look as... Uh, like, you walk down the street in Tokyo and everybody looks like a work of art. Right. They're so beautifully dressed. They're well put together. There's an aesthetic sensibility that is wonderful. Uh, but I, I wasn't really going to try and compete. <laughs> okay. But just surrendering, going, it's all different. And that's glorious. Yeah. And 
So I spent my first year trying to learn a bit of Japanese and I went to my classes and you mentioned being the ethnic minority. Um, I had Japanese classes, which were uh, like the United Nations. Sure. And we were all in there and we all and I made friends with lots of people from different countries. And then I had my theatre classes as well, where I'd get a word per five minutes. I just because they were speaking in very advanced academic Japanese. Uh, which I did not speak, yes. but I was showing up because that was they were the terms of my scholarship. Wow. And slowly and surely, and then of course, you know, six weeks in, I had to give a paper, um, <laughs> which conveniently they let me give in English. But you're kind of going, oh my goodness! And then they asked the most sophisticated, thoughtful questions. It was, and they had all heard my thing in English, and wow. I'd never said a word to me in wow. English. They, they, it was not translated for them, and they asked me in Japanese, and my professor. <laughs> Translate it, and I tried to answer as best as they had asked. It was sobering. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, the director who sparked your interest in Japan in the first place, I'm going to try and murder the pronunciation on Nina Gawa. Am perfect. I right? Absolutely perfect. I have a dear friend who thought I was going to study with a woman called Nina Gawa. Um, so. She's also a very good director, don't you? Oh, she's it? fabulous. She, yeah, she's, she's a fashion designer, I think. She's great. Uh, <laughs> um, and so you, there you go over to Japan and did anything further happen in your interest well, with this great director? Yes, because... Um, I went back to Greece that summer from Tokyo. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, the, the terms of my scholarship in Japan were, were such that that was not a problem. Okay. And, and so I went to Greece. And while I was there, one of the talking heads from the Bile documentary that my mother recorded. This is so weird. Like, it's all traced to this one VHS. <laughs> uh, but one of the... I think talk- we had Ghostbusters on VHS. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not quite the same, is it? <laughs> well, Ghostbusters is back now, too. Um the, one of the guys on that, the incredible Oliver Taplin, uh, was part of the Epidaurus party. And he said that Thelma Holt, who was a producer, is a producer, uh, was going to be in Tokyo in August. So these were the days when you could find somebody's email address on the interweb. And I did. And so with pure cheek, I wrote to her and I said, uh, Dear Thelma, I'm in Tokyo and I'm studying, etc., etc., And I would love if I could talk to you about your association because she's the person who brought his work to the Barbican, to the National Theatre and so on and had been his champion. So she deigned to meet me in the bar of a Tokyo hotel, like the Tennessee Williams play. And we had a fabulous chat. And then at the end of it, she was like, you can put nothing of anything I've said here into your research because it was all just... Salacious. Oh, it's fantastic. Because we didn't have coffee, shall I say. Okay. Um, She was incredibly generous. And then she said, if you have a letter here by eight o'clock tomorrow morning, I'm leaving here at eight. I have a full day, but I'm having lunch with darling Nina, as only she could call him. And uh, big Nina. Sorry, darling Nina, something else. Big Nina. Um, So then half cut on sake, thanks to her. (laughs) 10 o'clock at night, I was going home and I had, what, a number of hours to get the letter. So thankfully I'd made a couple of friends by then. So there was a sort of an MSN messenger, God be with the days, party of like frantically asking, you translate that and, and so on and so forth. Because the letter of course had to be in Japanese. Of course. So I, I then went, and I didn't have a printer even. <laughs> uh, so I was at Kinko's somewhere in Shinjuku at seven o'clock the following morning. I <laughs> uh, got the letter and I typed, I did one in English, one in Japanese. I bought a very nice envelope and then over to the same Tokyo hotel, um, handed it over and the following that afternoon I got a phone call and the following day or the following Monday I was in rehearsal with Nina Gawa and I was there for a year how spectacular a thing is that I mean is that like like this is ludicrous this is getting Scorsese or Peter Brook or yeah he's um, he was the the, well there's Suzuki Mm -hmm. who is um, made work in a very different style yes Um, much more what Stanley we would Feedy. consider, Stan, <laughs> yes, they invented that method and that inspired an awful lot from Anne Bogart as well. Um, but the two of them would be considered the kind of titans whose work from the 70s onwards garnered international attention. Sure. Um, Ninagawa, his big thing was that he was never going to be defeated by the text. So he always did as much of the play as remotely possible um, and was devoted not just to Shakespeare, not just to Greek tragedy, yeah. but this is somebody who directed over 300 different plays in his career. And he directed Hamlet eight times, um, eight, like eight different productions, including one in English. Um, so there's an awful lot to learn from him. And I just, 
he, he's, he's a very big deal. And in terms of incorporating your love of the Greeks and the classics, the Japanese tradition, mm. and him, like it, that's kind of perfect storm territory. Well, I came at a good time. He okay. was 70 in 2005 when I got in with him. And that year he, very conveniently for my purposes, directed a show of Kabuki, which is not a normal thing because Kabuki, the traditional theatre form, yeah. doesn't normally have a director per se. Okay. But he made a production for them of Twelfth Night, which was astonishing. He did a Greek tragedy that year. He did, um, well, he did, two, well, he did two Greek tragedies actually. He did Medea the year uh, bef- just before I got in and, and had my fantastic, generous acceptance. Um, and then the following year, he did Orestes by Euripides, which was a very strange choice, but fascinating. Uh, he did a beautiful Japanese play here and there. He did Modern No Plays by Mishima. Um, like a really broad spectrum of things which seems to have been what he did every year really? yeah but no one does that either like you're the guy who does musicals or you're the guy who does mm. opera you're the guy who does don't I know it. <laughs> but yeah to he, have that broad spectrum seems wild absolutely extraordinary and uh, I'm not going to say that absolutely every one of them was absolutely brilliant but there's there's a base level of extreme talent at work there yeah. and then some of them were transcendently special wow you know, world-changing ones. He did... Oh, I'm going to have to say the word now. Go on. Because his most famous was Ninagawa Macbeth. Right. Um, which was such a, a sort of interpretation of the play that his name got to be attached to it. Um, but it was set in sort of feudal Japan with samurai and cherry there you blossoms. Go. And it, it came to the Barbican last year uh, because he, he died in 2016. Okay. And then in his honour, they remounted it. He had just reached his 80th birthday and they had done it for that yeah uh, uh, sort of put it back together because uh, the production was uh, late 70s early 80s okay and it had never been better than it was and then they took it to London Thelma did so wow. and I got to go and I got to see it and it was to, to see it live it, it does make a difference um, but th- this kind of mythological production could still hold weight yeah. and hold water was, was wonderful not by that all day long um, and so I'm going to write a book about him yeah, why not? Yeah, it's it's the monkey on my back. Really? Uh, for all of the, the academic work, and uh, there's there's another degree that I got afterwards that we'll talk about probably in a minute. Uh, yeah, I think it, it's it's my job. I, I have to do it. Okay. And I, I owe it to him and to the kindness he showed me and the yeah. event he taught me. And the fact that there's lots of articles and stuff and he has garnered some attention, but there isn't a book. Okay. And I hope there are talks happening. But I hope that there will be one soon enough. That would be deadly. Um, so the one ta- copy sold. <laughs> <laughs> the time comes to leave Japan. Yeah. Did you go directly across the Pacific to the west coast of America? Or uh, did no, I did a little bit? thing. Um, the reason I left Japan was a little artist development program called Seeds. Whatever happened to anybody that came through that one? Well, my lot are having a very good time at the moment. Uh, Sophie Motley Yes Kean O'Brien Yes Deirdre Dwyer Yes Sarah Jane Shields Stacey Gregg Fintan O'Higgins And Flavour of this month in particular She's always been fantastic Is Lisa McGee Who created Dairy Girls Holy shitballs mm-hmm. That's a hell of a gang of people Yeah I found a photograph of uh, All of us the other day And put it on Facebook And yeah We done good That's kind of wild Yeah Yeah we um, had a great time so that's incredible. So, so I mean, so the, your time in Japan was done at that stage. The scholarship was for eighteen months, and I extended okay. it because uh, Big Nina was directing a show I really wanted to work on, and I was invited by the Japanese government. This was the Beckett Centenary Year. Yes. At the not the Japanese government, the Irish Embassy in Japan put together a beautiful program and asked me to direct some of that, and so I. Was not going to say no to oh, that. Of course. And the government then, I, I sort of lobbied and asked if I could extend my visa, and they said yes. And Rough Magic said yes, you can stay a little bit longer because <laughs> okay. I got feeds. And conveniently, Ninagawa took a production of Titus Andronicus to the Royal Shakespeare Company, so the seeds all got to go on a trip and have a look and see what on Amazing. earth I had been talking about. Amazing. <laughs> and then we, I came back and got cracking and. So I was, I think, in back in Ireland a couple of probably wet days, and then we went straight to Budapest on our first seeds trip altogether, which yes. was mind blowing. And while we were there, we saw a little play called Caligula, mm-hmm. and that amazing producer Kian O'Brien sort of said, "I think you should read this play again, and I think maybe would this work as something to do as thing?" And that became my what's the the Kanye song, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. <laughs> um, 
yeah, and that was our half of our graduating showcase from Seeds was Caligula. Wow. Um, as you look back on your time with Seeds, what did it give you that either the time of Trinity or players or the time, say, in Greece or Japan didn't do? What, what was special about it? Well, I'd had the privilege of sitting watching Ninagawa work, yeah. which was amazing, but through Japanese, which I still have the conversational ability of a three, maybe a four-year-old. Okay. I can get everything I want. Not a lot of nuance. Okay. And so the finer details of some things, I'm sure, escaped me. Uh, to get to sit in a room with Lynn Parker, who does not direct through Japanese, no, was an incredible privilege. Yeah. And she, uh, the show I happened to work on was Don Carlos, which yes. was an amazing moment. And the cast who were in that, and the play, and the moment it happened, and the guts of it mm. and the design of it and just it was very special and Lynn is, is amazing when she sort of says for certainly for the Seeds directing assistant you can sit and you can watch and there is no pressure on you you can just observe and learn and you're not going to be asked to fix anything um, now of course almost any director is going to chomp against that and be like but I want to help and, and you know there's, there's, there's value to both sides of that but to eat, just watching the way, and I'm not going to give away any of her secrets, I don't think, but watching her in a room, leading a conversation, and you don't even feel it happening, but within 45 minutes, a seismic shift has, has like the, a 180 has turned, and that's incredible. Yeah. And just watching, and you're going, how did she do that? Um, and with a play like that, that is so full of ideas and so full of humanity and passion, was a very special moment and then immediately it opened I, they sent Sophie and myself off to the National Theatre in London to their director's course where we got to see all manner of people and shows and exposure and people who were on that course Lindsay Turner was on that course who directed that production of Hamlet and uh, Nadia Fall who was incredible uh, huge huge I'm gonna I mean there were what, 20 of us there right. all have done amazing things wow. um, so yeah kind of what a time to be alive so when does the States happen then? Um, the big thing that also from Seeds was like, I really do really want to be a director. Yeah. Like the moment was either, am I going to do a PhD? Okay. Or am I going to do uh, some more training maybe and be a director? And I just felt... Well, wait, sorry, when you left Japan, was there another official piece of paper from Japan? No, no it was no, just... A, sadly, it no. was a... I was a research scholar there. Okay. Um, a lot of checks, but no piece of paper. Okay. Well, <laughs> which is fine. I, I like the pieces of paper that are checks. They're, well, they're nice know, ones. You know. Um, so I, I really did want to train. Um, it was a very difficult time in my life anyway. Um, the transition back from Japan to here was crunchy. Okay. Because um, things are different and you're, you know, I, I, if, I don't know if the Saturn's return thing is real or not, but that kind of late 20s moment of, I hate everything and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, ah, and so on and so forth. Um, so I, yet again, decided to go as far away as possible. Um I had applied to the Columbia Directing Program in okay. New York, and I arrived in New York. Which York. is Anne Bogart's place? That's correct. And I walked in, and the incredible Matthew Tordy was sitting, looking at me, going, how's about you? <laughs> and fair play to him, he was accepted, and it was absolutely the right fit for him, and it absolutely was not the right fit for me. Um, I'm a firm believer that that lovely thing of what's for you won't pass you. Absolutely. Every single thing that I haven't gotten, I feel felt disappointed about at some point in my life. Within months, a little sign has arrived and gone, you see, it's okay. And I'm, I love that, and that's how I try to live. Uh, but a dear friend in Greece, because I, I kept going to Greece all, yeah. all this time, uh, said, the UCLA program in, in directing is pretty good, and it's kind of, it, you might be a fit for it. And so she suggested I apply, and I did. And I, <laughs> all this bouncing around I, I plant trees occasionally for because I feel guilty about my carbon footprint <laughs> but I was in Japan for a conference and I got two emails on the same day one was from UCLA saying please come for an interview and the other was from Lachlan Deegan saying that uh, Caligula had been chosen for the first ever reviewed strand in the yes, festival yes indeed and so I wrote back and said yes please to both and then a couple of months later I had done almost all of the putting back together of Caligula and then got on a plane and I wow. moved to Los Angeles. How crazy is Los Angeles? I lived in a bubble. Okay. I lived in Westwood, which is where the UCLA campus is, itself a miniature city. Uh, and I lived on campus because I was parent. Sure. And I, I lived in LA for three years with no car. 
That's an achievement. <laughs> yeah, they, they say that, that it's um, then people who, who walk anywhere in Los Angeles are homeless or prostitutes. Or graduate <laughs> students from Europe, it seems. Because um, I was none, neither of the former. Um, but I got through the program there. My mother died within three months of my starting there, wow. which was incredibly difficult. And... Um, but were incredibly difficult. Yeah, of course. And the the way I chose to cope with it was work. Yeah. Like a demon. Yeah. I read constantly. I worked. I worked. I worked. Um. So the the fun side of LA, I know it's there. Didn't really. And again, not having the freedom of a car because it it's as if somebody took a city and then just spread it out like butter on a piece of toast. Yeah. It's huge. Um. So there was a bit of kindness of strangers and classmates if ever I had to go anywhere, but uh, I. I I've read a lot of plays. And <laughs> <laughs> um, what was really nice there was that I got to direct a very wide variety of things. A new play, which I'd never done before, because, you know, it, it would appear on paper, at least, I was interested in plays by old, dead, white men. Yes. Um, which is not exclusively true. Um, but I got to do a play and collaborate with a living playwright who was writing it as his graduate work in, yeah. in school. And we got on really well and I loved doing it. And that was a really exciting thing because I was very apprehensive of having to do this because, you know, what if the play wasn't good? <laughs> and, you know, it's a concern. Yeah. But it was a really beautiful play. And it was about somebody coming to terms with the death of their mother. And this was within eight months of that happening to me. Wow. Uh, but that, it was the right time for it. Yeah, so it wasn't too soon. It was a useful yeah. process. It was very, very good. Wow. And I, I think it may even be the best thing I did while I was there. Right. Uh, I followed it up with Much Ado About Nothing, which I thought was going to be amazing because I was going to be a Shakespeare director. And yeah, goodness, goodness. Every student in the show spoke the language very well, very clearly. And everybody got that. And there was one scene that I did. I, I pulled a little stunt and I loved it. That was kind of it. Okay. Uh, it was not great. And I was watching it, seeing it not be great which was really hard. And then I had my, my very dear professor took me aside afterwards, just, and he was not my supervisor for yeah. this show at all. But he sat me down and I thought we were gonna have a chat for about 15 minutes. For two and a half hours and several cups of coffee, we talked about the show. And he talked and I listened. Yeah. And at the end of it, I, you know, I was bleeding. Of course. <laughs> but it was the most important moment of the whole time there because he basically pointed out that just because you think you're going to be good at something doesn't mean that that has to happen and work harder think more keep going we hear all the time from really successful people that they prize their failures in inverted commas more highly than their successes and i never believed that i, I yeah never and then this happened and i went this is what they mean this, and, this is one of them because yeah. it's it's one of those because look in our line of work whichever discipline or path you've chosen it's fucking hard right there's an mm. awful lot of easier things out there to do that's true and you pour your heart and soul into it and those knockbacks when they come and they come inevitably yeah um they're they're tough to roll with but i do think they're the making of you yeah oh certainly for me um it was very surprising i mean i i arrived on a, a slight tide of kind of classically ancient greek stuff there and there were two directors in my year and my counterpart Monica had come from Steppenwolf where she had been okay. an actor and she had moved to Los Angeles and was um, teaching and um, teaching acting a lot and sure. directing. So she was exclusively interested in kind of American psychological realism and that kind of play. Yeah. And none of this nonsense of old people in dresses talking <laughs> and poetry. I, the opposite, and we got on so well despite our huge differences in taste and I'm kind of proud of the fact that she then directed a Greek tragedy and a dance piece with barely any words as her thesis and I wound up directing Pains of Youth which is an early 20th <laughs> century smart but modern difficult chewy play yeah. and we, we both kind of joined forces and, and, and came up against each other and, and we never argued but just our differences and, and what we had to bring to the table um, was was great and we'd both lost a parent and that was you know something that we could talk about if we needed to but yeah. we didn't have to talk about it but we knew that you know we, there were yeah. parallel lines and so yeah but I, I should also say that um the work done by all of my students in much do about nothing was very good 
it was me that was the failure. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, I, I'm glad you're taking ownership of this. I, um, yeah. So, and so, was that an MFA out of? It was a master of fine arts. Yeah, I was there for three years. Holy shit balls! You have a lot of paperwork. Yeah. How I many think, letters after your name do you have at this stage? Uh, Lots. Yeah. I think Tanya Dean might have more. Yeah, I guess, but still. Uh, yeah, I think she she was talking on this August podcast recently about the the number of years she spent in. Um, oh yeah. I think she has me me pipped at that post, but I'm chopping it. <laughs> I do love the the academy, and um, yeah, I just kind of love sitting in the dark in the theatre more. Yeah, it's true. Um, before we get out of here, there are two topics I want to cover. Sure. I want to cover them in more detail, but um, time is against us, as it always is. Um, tell me why opera isn't for posh Southside women, and in fact, it's for everybody. Uh, uh, south of where, Angus? Uh, south of the Liffey. The one I have to get my passport stamp before I cross. Um, I know technically I'm in Dublin too now, but it just it, it feels like I, I mean within spitting distance of the river, so I'm technically okay. You feel um, safe, yeah? A little bit, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, tell me, <laughs> tell me why opera is awesome. Well, uh, at UCLA, there is an incredible teacher and former, he's still a singer, but he, he chose a moment in his life to dedicate himself to teaching and to service. And his name is Peter Cazares. And he saw a little classroom piece of work I did and kind of said, come and play in the opera department, maybe. Uh, also, the year ahead of me was an extraordinary director called James Dara, who only wanted to direct opera. Came, wanted to do opera, and that was it. Uh, um, and that's kind of enviable focus, uh, which I didn't necessarily have, but I'd never really thought about people directing opera before at all, which is bizarre. But I suppose it does kind of speak to um, Ireland's opera culture. The, the great work of the DGOS and Opera Ireland had always happened, but it wasn't something of all the things my parents took me to see wasn't opera. Yeah. And so I arrived in Los Angeles having not really seen very much. Um, but then James sort of engineered all these opportunities for himself and then very kindly graduated, leaving for our final year, yeah. these things open. And Peter in the opera department said, come have a go. So he let me direct a 10 minute opera called A Hand of Bridge, which is about four people playing bridge and you get to hear their interior monologue, um, which is very accessible. You might enjoy it. There you go. Um, it's very clever and witty and I have now directed three times. <laughs> uh, and I love it. Um, and then the following year, uh, he let me be his assistant slash associate on a production of Dialogues of the Carmelites, which is an, an incredible French opera from the 20th century about the Carmelite martyrs of Compiègne in France who were all guillotined because they wouldn't give up their faith. So 16 Carmelite nuns. And this opera ends, there's a guillotine in the musical no. score. Hand to heart. There's a guillotine in the musical score as each of it starts with all 16 nuns singing and, um, oh, goodness, the name of it, it'll come back to me now as I keep talking. Um, that's really annoying. But they all start singing together. Salve Regina, there we go. Um, start singing together and one by one the voices stop because wow. they are being decapitated. And then finally, this is, I hope not a spoiler, <laughs> but the heroine's faith is restored and she sings with her sisters and she dies as well so it's in like you want to talk about an emotional punch yeah my godmother my mother's other sister is a carmelite nun wow okay uh so there was an access to that life and that experience that i was able to share with some of the students i, I wound up being responsible for the chorus which was 16 young women from southern california um who lived a very 21st century Kardashian adjacent literally <laughs> life and um, trying to impress on them the kind of strictures that were on life there so <laughs> I made them all surrender their mobile phones excellent and we talked one day about the vow of silence and without my necessarily suggesting it thereafter in rehearsal there was no talking Really? We had this really rich... And it, it didn't become a religious experience per se, yeah. but a kind of respectful acknowledgement of what these characters might have gone through. Um, and it was incredible. And I was 28, and I kind of had the Oprah light bulb cliche moment going, oh my God, there's a job where I can put together the classical music that I really enjoy. And I was in the school choir, and I loved that. And a bit of scale and, you know, choruses, Greek or otherwise, and put it all together, and, and I could do that. And that was how that happened so then I came back here I did the next stage yeah incredible and Rasha Gowen who is in terms of foresight and thinking and seeing patterns before they're there is second to none um, said to me before I did the next stage 
Tom Lane is doing that and I think you're going to be friends. There you go. And sure enough, one day over lunch, we were all friends and I was in a good class. The next day she seems always to have a Yeah, there's class. never a badge. It no, hasn't been a bad vintage no, certainly yet. certainly not. Um, but, uh, Caroline Byrne, Katrina McLaughlin, Tom Lane, Aoife Splan Hinks, Louise White and many others who I just don't have time to yeah. mention here. I love you all. Um, but one day at lunch I was saying, I want to direct an opera. And Tom Lane said, well, I wrote one. And it was called Flatpack. And so we... The most obvious opera subject of all time. Naturally, Ikea furniture. And the entire libretto is made up of Ikea product titles. And so we wrote to the Arts Council, thinking they might, they might throw us a few shekels. And they gave us every penny we asked for. And we put it on in the fringe. Thank you, Rasha. And yeah, then <laughs> about a week after we finished, we were sitting down at CHQ um, where we had done Flatpack. And it had gone very well. And I'm very proud of it. And I said to Tom, you know, well, what do you think you want to do next? And he looked over the river and there's that beautiful Samuel Beckett bridge, which sort of looks like a harp. And he said, what if we turn that into a musical instrument? So two years later, we did. <laughs> um, and yeah, so Tom and I have wound up with this amazing... I, I think it's a, a privilege to work with him because I've never met anybody who thinks the way he does. He's a great head. He really is very special and he'll blush head to toe that we're talking about him. Um, but we've done those two. We're writing an opera together, which mm. is full of women, because opera does not do well. When you look at the storylines of what happens to people in opera and their representation and so on, it's really not good. But it's an incredible art form nonetheless. Can I ask what language you're writing in? <laughs> Given that at this stage it could be Japanese or Greek or Latin or English or anything well, else. Well, that's really funny that you ask because it's actually, poor Tom, I've written the libretto in, I think, nine languages. Of course you have. Of course you um, have. It's a, it's a sort of departure from Bluebeard's Castle and it's about the power of the imagination and the consolation of philosophy, uh, which is a, a philosophical text about people who were incarcerated and how they use their imaginations to be free. Um and all of that kind of stuff but it's all female okay because there are so many voices and Irish voices who are female who deserve jobs true story and <laughs> just I weirdly I address. know a lot of them yes I'm sure you do I was in, like, Tara was in school behind me right. and I know Claudia was in the Betty Ann Norton um, school with me as well two so major global players yeah right who now. used to hang out with 15 year old Engel which is quite an achievement they are I think it is a really exciting time for Irish opera um, Fergus and Diego and Gavin have Irish National Opera in very safe hands now. It's, I think it's an amazing time that this is happening, that they are, the, the programme they've put together for this first year is so ambitious but exciting. And there's, I mean, it, it feels easy to say there's something for everybody, mm. but really and truly, um, as an art form, it has music, it has passion, it has scale, it has crazy stories. And yeah, if you think opera, if you think opera is not for you, you give it a chance. You're wrong. It's okay, because we, who are putting our necks on the line trying to make it happen, we have been bitten by a very generous bug, and certainly um, the the passion that goes into it. If if we don't make you feel it, we're not doing it right. Okay, and we'd love to see you there. <laughs> now, finally, because I'm not, I can't finish this without doing it. Um, I like podcasts. <laughs> I also happen to like the second greatest play ever written. Um, I'd love to know what the greatest play ever Translations, written. hands down. Let's not even debate it. Uh, <laughs> it goes <laughs> translations, Hamlet, Blood Brothers. That's the hierarchy. Um, Tell me it's true. <laughs> talk to me about your Hamlet podcast, which is, if I say so, fucking deadly. Oh, thank you very much. Um, well, actually, this it's a very interesting week that we're doing this. Are we allowed to talk about when this is? Yes, we can. Yeah, we can. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this weekend is the first anniversary of Frank Delaney, the great, great thinker and writer and podcaster. Uh, and he made a podcast all about Ulysses, which I have never finished reading. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in that. <laughs> he put together this podcast called Rejoice and in five minute installments explains it. And I've I'm nearly finished chapter two of that in about, I don't know, a hundred episodes. Uh, but the exuberance and the enthusiasm and the, the smarts with which he identifies what's going on in this very difficult book, I, I happened across it by accident and I adore it. And then I was absolutely gutted this time last year when I read that he had passed away and it hadn't been completed because how on earth am I going to get to the end of this Leviathan book? 
Um, and I had developed a habit of walking and listening to podcasts, and I'm still doing that. And in about um, July, I suppose around about the time of my birthday last year, uh, I'm a cancer baby, that I just sort of thought, if I were to do a podcast, what would I do? What would I be able to talk about with the kind of vim that the Bowel Frank would? And I thought about Hamlet, which I've never directed. I've been the assistant director on it. Okay. Uh, but I haven't. And I had ne- weirdly, if you gave me a million dollars now and said you can do any play, it well, now it might. <laughs> but back then, of course, because plays cost a million dollars. Um, it wasn't on that, but I had directed All's Well That Ends Well in the Lear yes. last year and had a, a great time doing so. Um, and my stage manager had said, I've learned more from the nonsense that you talk with such enthusiasm. I thought, well, okay, maybe. And so I kind of thought, well, Hamlet is a, it's not as long as Ulysses. Correct. At all. And I kind of did the sums and figured out that if I started last summer and if I did 20 lines of the play per week with occasional weeks to spare just in case something happened, uh, I would finish it on my 40th birthday. And so there will be an episode, possibly episode number 200 of the Hamlet podcast, thehamletpodcast.com, by the way. (laughs) Uh, get the plug-in. Available from iTunes. Is that what I'm Indeed, to say? yes, absolutely. Um, Subscribe, and, rate, review. Oh, yes, they're supposed to do that, aren't yeah, they? they got it. Does that help? Oh, big time. Okay, I didn't... Mm, that's the big stuff. I'm the rookie here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I take 20 lines of the play every week and just have a little chat about it. It's about 10 minutes long and when I finish a scene of the play, I make a bonus episode about somebody who's made an interesting contribution to the history of the play. And I love it. It's just really fun. And what's very flattering and moving to me is that other people seem to be tuning in, which yeah. is very nice. So you're not uh, just screaming into the void. Well, I mean, I've been doing that anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so my 40th birthday, I'm going to be in Denmark. Excellent. And I'm going to probably, I'm going to record the live episode there. I don't know. If, I mean, I'm sure I have some Danish police or what's her name? Sarah from The Killing coming over to me going, excuse me. Uh, nonetheless, we'll, we'll figure something out. But that's... A, a while yet. I'm only on Act One, Scene Four, as it is. Yeah, we have some we have some time to get through. I know it's it's awesome. I love it, and I uh, heartily recommend everyone else should uh, subscribe and download and have an old listen. Well, thank you very um, much. <laughs> b- we, before we get out of here, as you look back on your time in the business to date, goodness, <laughs> um, it, this is an impossible question. Is there one thing that stands out as I was really happy with that, or I learned a lot from that, or I fell flat on my face there, but it led me to X, Y, and Z afterwards. Is there one moment that you look back on and go, I'm really grateful to have had that in my experience? Um, yeah. Last summer, Tom and I did, and, and Lily Ackerman, a uh, librettist, did a new opera called Front of House, because um, the indomitable Eileen Gleeson in Cork Opera House decided to cook up some way of enriching the front of house of Cork Opera House. The, the building itself is open on three floors, mm-hmm. so you can't really block things off within it. And she suggested to Tom, could we maybe cup something up? And with Maura O'Keefe as a producer, um, we put together a show which we called Front of House, and it was a promenade opera about the cleaning staff giving life to... A just you know, Opera can be really for everybody, but giving life to people that you might not otherwise pay attention to in any way in a theatre building and uh, the cleaning staff themselves I think thought we were demented and then came to see it and they loved it um, but just the, the privilege of watching the five musicians three of them singers two musicians um, and putting an audience really up close to an opera singer Magella Cola is a national treasure that nobody knows and we should all be at her feet and she agreed to be part of the show and she wore a turban and she sang the part of the floor polisher <laughs> and truly watching an audience see and more importantly hear that kind of a voice and you know they're two feet away from her Mm. was just magic it was really really moving and exciting and just seeing people enjoy that it was in broad daylight because it's all glass fronted gorgeous cork opera house Uh, and then we pulled a stunt at the end of the show whereby one of the cast actually walked out onto the bridge over the river Lee and they all had to figure out that she was out there and then wave at her and so on and it was just great fun and open and accessible and all those things that I, I worry that you don't feel are true about opera, but I hope you do now. Absolutely. Um, and it was recent and 
very very happy collaboration so yeah that's that's the most recent i've been very lucky it's uh, it's an incredible story i love it it's so interesting there's so much stuff there that you've kind of done a lot of the things that people go oh i really should do more of that <laughs> i think you've kind of done it which is amazing to me and yet i have a list i have to say do you still have the old bucket list uh, well, I, I just have a list of things that I, you know one tries to do. Yeah. So I'm going to do something very mad at the end of this year, but I'm not going to talk about it. No, indeed. Keep it under wraps. <laughs> I look forward to it. Connor, thank you so much for coming on. That was an excellent chat. I really appreciate you being here. My great pleasure. So there you have it, the great Connor Hanratty. Such a brilliant chat with Connor. Delighted to get to spend the time with him. He's a guy who's a real inspiration to me, a guy who's done so much and seen so much and is so knowledgeable and so well read on all this stuff. He's a real pleasure to be around and there's so much stuff that we just didn't even get to cover in that chat. I could have spoken to him all day long. He's a hero of mine. So glad to get him on the podcast at long last. And do please, if you get a chance, go and check out his Hamlet podcast. It is absolutely well worth a listen. And so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of the theatrical goings on around the country. At the Abbey, they have the last few sold-out performances of Loch Nahala from Chuck Dowsa and the brilliant Michael Keegan Dolan. At the Gate, they are continuing with Look Back in Anger at the Gaiety John B. Keane's Sive is still run there. The Board Gosh have the Scottish play. Um, at the New Theatre, they're still running with After the End, starring the brilliant Maria Guyver and Paul Livingston and that. If you haven't caught that yet, get yourselves in there. Uh, New Theatre is one of my favourite theatres in town. It's a really intimate, claustrophobic production that suits the space so well. Well worth checking out. Um, at Smock Alley at the moment, they have all the seen and heard shows. The one that I am going to be getting to this weekend is Curse of the Toothless One by Kevin C. Olin, who is a wonderful theatre artist. Um, at the Civic Theatre, they still have um, We Don't Know What's Buried Here from the brilliant Grace Dias. At the Viking in Clontarf, they have Des Kyo in The Love Hungry Farmer, and that will be followed by Holy Mary, starring Mary Murray and Mae Fitzgerald, and directed by the brilliant Aoife Spillane Hinks. At Bewley's, they have the last few performances of Looking Deadly, and that'll be followed by Peep, starring Emily Fox and Alex Conlon, directed by longtime Rise collaborator Gavin Costick in a directorial role this time, so I shall be definitely getting in to see that. Um, at Project, they have Scorch and Marco Rose, The Approach. And then as we head south to Cork at the Everyman, they have The Gardener and Someone Who'll Watch Over Me. Um, at the Town Hall in Galway, they also have Someone Who'll Watch Over Me. And then in Limerick at the Lime Tree, they have The Constant Wife coming up there. Uh, as we head north to the Lyric in Belfast, Murder of Crows is still on the road, starring the brilliant Ash O'Mara, Amy Stewart and Katie Honan. Uh, and also they have I'll Tell my ma up there so look that's us that is episode 15 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of ireland's leading theater makers but in the meantime this has been the rise productions irish theater podcast for angus og McAnally, i'm angus og McAnally. we'll see you next week Bye.